Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. We have reached the end of my Titanic Week anniversary posts, and in this final episode, we'll look at the epilogue, 109 years to the day that the Carpathia deposited the Titanic survivors in Manhattan. To hear all about that event, check out our previous episode, Titanic's Last Voyage, The Rescue. But of course, for people who go through dramatic and traumatic events like the Titanic, their experience doesn't just end where the story often ends for us. So I'd like to um, pay a little bit of homage to what the impact of the Titanic was. It's just as fascinating as the sinking, and I'm excited to share it with you. Just as I have been uh, over the last week to share eyewitness testimonies from some of the Titanic's passengers and crew. But I don't think we focus on the crew enough. And so stay tuned to hear my interview with the brilliant author Julie Cook, where we discuss her groundbreaking research into the pulverizing, ignored impact of the Titanic on the working class communities who lost so much when it sank. On the 27th of April 1912, 12 days after the Titanic disappeared beneath the waves, a 17,500 ton Belgian ocean liner, the Lapland, steamed closer and closer to the British Isles. She was one day off from her destination, the southern English city of Portsmouth, where she would deposit the nearly 2,000 bags of mail that she was carrying to Britain. They had been intended for transportation on the Titanic on her return voyage from New York to the UK, but after the sinking, they were redirected to the Lapland. Along with the Titanic's mail, the Lapland was also carrying 172 of her survivors, all of them crew members, who were going home to the United Kingdom on this ship, specially chartered by the White Star Line. It might seem odd that a Belgian ship was picked to bring home employees of a British company, but both the White Star Line and the Lapland's operators, the Red Star Line, were owned by the American conglomerate, the International Mercantile Marine, brainchild of J.P. Morgan. So that, of course, made this kind of cooperation easier. Walking on the decks and sleeping in the cabins of the Lapland as she steamed for Britain, smoke pouring from her two black funnels with their company signature white band near the top, was Mary Sloan. Like the Lapland, built in the Harlanden Wolf Yard, Mary Sloan was born in Belfast. She had worked as a stewardess to Titanic's first-class passengers. One day before reaching the United Kingdom again, Mary sat down on the Lapland to write this letter to her sister Maggie, who lived in Belfast. 
Mary had previously sent a telegram to let her family know that she had survived the Titanic, but she hoped they wouldn't tell her mother she'd been working on that great ship in case it frightened her. From the Lapland, Mary Sloan told her sister of the terrible night that the Titanic sank and her interactions with the colleagues she loved particularly the Titanic's Ulster-born designer Thomas Andrews, who sadly had not survived. She also mentions the ship's two Irish doctors, Dr Simpson and Dr O'Loughlin. Mary Sloan was played for us in episode 3 of this series by Belfast-born actress Ashley Montgomery, who is returning to read segments of Mary's letter for us today. My dear Maggie, I expect you will be glad to hear from me and know I'm still in the land of the living. Did you manage to keep the news from Mother? I hope you got the cablegram I sent you all right. I never lost my head that dreadful night. When she struck the iceberg at a quarter to twelve and the engine stopped, well, I knew right away something was wrong. Dr Simpson came and told me the mailroom was flooding. Things were pretty bad. He brought Miss Marston and me into his room and gave us a little whiskey and water. (laughs) I laughed and asked if he thought we needed it, and he said we would. Miss Marston was crying, and he was cross with her for that. He asked me if I was afraid, and I replied I was not. He said, well spoken like a trailster girl. He had to hurry away to see if there was anyone hurt. I never saw him again. We helped him on with his great coat. I never saw him again. Then I saw our dear old Dr. O'Loughlin. I asked him to tell me the worst. He said, child, things are very bad. I got a life belt and got on deck. But before that, I went round my cabins to see if my passengers were all up and if they had their life belts on. Poor Mr. Andrews came along the corridor and I read in his face all I wanted to know. He saw me knocking at some of the passengers' doors. He said that was the right thing to do. He told me to see they had life belts on and to get one for myself and go on deck. Oh, he was a brave man. Last time I saw him and heard him was about an hour later. Helping to get the women and children under the boats, imploring them not to hesitate, but to go and ask because there was no time to be lost. Mr Andrews met his fate like a true hero, realising the great danger. And he gave up his life to save the women and children of the Titanic. I intended to go back to my cabin for some of my jewellery, but I had no time in the end. When I went on deck the second time, one of the little bellboys recognised me, and he pointed me to a crowded lifeboat, saying, Miss Sloan, that's your boat. The distress signals were going every second, and there was a big crush from behind me, so I was pushed into a lifeboat. I believe it was one of the last ones to leave. We had scarcely got clear when the Titanic began sinking rapidly. We were in the lifeboats all night. I took a turn to row. The women in the lifeboats said I encouraged them and kept their spirits up. I was pleased. I have lost everything. We are arriving back on the Lapland. I think I told you this before. Trusting this will find you all safe and well. Your loving sister, Mary. 
Mary left the Lapland in Portsmouth, and she was reunited with her family in Belfast by the end of May, when she was interviewed by the Belfast newsletter. In that interview, she shaved 15 years off her age, a move for which I have nothing but admiration. What's also noteworthy about the newsletter interview is that she really didn't want to go into as many details about the Titanic sinking as she had been prepared to in her private letter to her sister. Instead, Mary's goal when she spoke to the journalists was to stress the heroism shown by Thomas Andrews. She wanted to make sure that the man she admired was known to have died bravely. And Thomas Andrews' grieving family later sought Mary out to speak with her privately about their son's final hours. It's possible they did so after reading the interview. They found her staying at Curzland Terrace in Ballyhackamore, for although Mary and her family were originally from the northern quarter of Belfast, by 1912 they had relocated to the east of the city. Mary Sloan's interview with the newsletter advertised to the public the courage and decency that Thomas Andrews had shown in his final hours alive. His family were inundated with letters of condolence, some from high-ranking aristocrats like the great Irish Unionist grandee, the Duke of Abercorn, but also thousands from ordinary people who were moved by what they read and heard of Andrews, people who maybe had never felt the need or impetus to write to someone they'd read about in the newspapers. Irish actress Deborah Hill reads one of the sentiments expressed in a condolence letter to Thomas's ailing and heartbroken mother, which was written by an anonymous North Irish housewife. I would be a proud and thankful woman if, when the day arrives for my son to face the portals of his life, I might have the joy of feeling he left behind him the unstained noble record of your son. Determined that the truth of Thomas Andrews' personality should not be lost as his life had been in the shadow of the Titanic's drama, his family collaborated with several Unionist politicians who suggested that they commission a commemorative biography of Thomas. The most prominent member of this biographical committee was Sir Horace Plunkett, the former MP for South Dublin and a member of the Irish Unionist Alliance. By 1912, the constitutional question of home rule for Ireland was becoming so intense that it looked as if there would be a civil war on the island. Thomas Andrews, like his family, had been a staunch Unionist, meaning they were strongly opposed to the idea of Irish independence from Britain in part or in full. The northern counties of Ireland in Ulster were typically the heartlands of Unionist sentiment, and Plunkett wanted to use Andrews' nobility and industry as a window into the alleged strengths of the Unionist cause. To write this biography, the committee commissioned a North Irish writer, Shan Bullock, an author noted for his work in preserving Irish folklore and fairy tales. 
born in the Irish county of Fermanagh and spending much of his time in London as an adult, Bullock had no problem, including details of Thomas Andrews' political beliefs in the biography. Andrews, like the whole family, had seen the north of Ireland as inherently and quintessentially British. They had opposed independence and Bullock dutifully included those details in his biography of Andrews, which was published in Dublin at the end of 1912. But Shan Bullock was also a man of emotion, a man who was admired by writers like Thomas Hardy and J.M. Barry for his skill and his sentimentality. While he had no qualms about showing what Thomas Andrews had believed politically, Bullock was not interested in writing an ideological hagiography through which he would rescue Thomas Andrews from the shadow of the Titanic, only to rebury him in the shadow of the Unionist cause. He wanted desperately to show who Thomas Andrews had been as a man, a father, a husband, a son, an employee and an employer. To that end, he went to the Harlington Wolf shipyards, where Andrews had been a managing director and where he had been loved by the labourers for his tireless attempts to improve their working conditions. While there, Bullock overheard the workers singing songs they had written in Andrew's memory. These words were first recorded in Bullock's biography, Thomas Andrew's Shipbuilder, but for me personally, they have an added emotional resonance, not solely because I consider them a beautiful testimony from hard labouring men, but also because my late great-grandfather, also called Thomas, heard his father singing them in 1912, and he remembered them singing them to me when I was a child. Shan Bullock is once again read for us by Irish actor Caelan Carragher. A Queen's Island Trojan, he worked to the last. Very proud we all feel of him here in Belfast. Our working men knew him as one of the best. He stuck to his duty and God gave him rest. Mary Sloan would have been pleased by Shan Bullock's biographical efforts to memorialise Thomas Andrews, a movement which she herself had helped start with those interviews to the newsletter in May 1912. Needing a salary, Mary went back to sea. Indeed, there seems to be a very real chance that one of the ships she was reassigned to work on had also been designed by Thomas Andrews. The Olympic, a sister of the Titanic, and in many cases with almost identical first-class rooms. That must have been a very eerie experience for Mary Sloan, who later left the sea to retrain as a nurse, She emigrated to America in 1916, and three years later, in Cincinnati, she married a divorced Canadian contractor called William Gleason. In 1922, they relocated to his native Canada, living in Vancouver, until Mary was back at sea, this time as a passenger, on a liner called the President Lincoln, which took her and her husband to Japan, where he had been contracted to work for a factory. They lived in Japan for two years, after which Mary took some time to cross the globe to see her family in Northern Ireland, as it had become after the partition of Ireland eight years earlier. By that point, her mother had passed away, but her sisters Maggie and Elizabeth were still living in East Belfast. 
The 14th day of April was not a lucky day for Mary Sloan or Mary Gleason, as she was by then. On the 32nd anniversary of that day when the Titanic had struck an iceberg, her husband died at their home in Canada. Relatively well off through her late husband's will, Mary decided she didn't want to live without family, and so she returned to Northern Ireland, living with her sister Maggie at number 104 Sandown Road. In February 1953, Mary died aged 86 of a massive heart attack while in hospital. She is buried at Dundonald Cemetery just outside Belfast. It had been 40 years since that terrible night on the Titanic and not all survivors had endured as long as Mary Sloan. One of the earliest deaths was Colonel Archibald Gracie IV, the Alabama-born historian who did not live long enough to see the Titanic's first anniversary. Having been swept overboard into the freezing water, the colonel never fully recovered his health from that night of the sinking, and he died in New York aged 54 three weeks before Christmas 1912. Before his death, however, he had written a memoir of his experiences on the Titanic, with an eye for posterity like a good historian should, extracts from which were read to us this week by actor Peter Evangelista, including details of the ordeal that eight months later would contribute to his untimely death. My holding on to the iron railing prevented my being knocked unconscious. I pulled myself over onto the roof on my stomach, but before I could get to my feet, I was in a whirlpool of water, swirling round and round, as I still tried to cling to the railing as the ship plunged to the depths below. Mary had also outlived Jack Thayer, who had been a plucky 17-year-old when he boarded the Titanic in first class with his parents in 1912. Like Colonel Gracie, Jack later wrote an account of what happened on the Titanic. After a life in which he had attended university, pledged a fraternity, fought in the First World War, gone into banking, married, fathered children and become a privileged pillar of his community. At the urging of friends and family, he wrote his memoir of the Titanic in 1940, and it's hard not to look back with pain at the hopefulness he had felt at 17. The weather was fair and clear, the ship palatial, the food delicious. Almost everyone was counting the days till we would see the Statue of Liberty. I occupied a stateroom adjoining that of my father and mother on the port side of sea deck. And needless to say, being 17 years old, I was all over the ship. Jack's widowed mother, Marion, also died on the anniversary of the Titanic's collision, passing away on the exact same day as Mary Sloane's husband. A year before, Jack's son, Edward, had been shot down and killed while serving as a pilot in the United States Air Force for the Second World War. His son's death in combat, followed so soon by his mother's, exacerbated the depression that Jack may have inherited from his father John, and by mentally reliving the Titanic for his memoir. Jack Thayer committed suicide in September 1945. The role the memoir played in unsettling him is contested and ultimately unknowable. 
Another of the Titanic's memoir writing survivors was also played for us by Paul, second-class passenger Lawrence Beasley, who wrote The Loss of the SS Titanic, published in the year of the sinking. It was a great commercial success. Beasley, with his keen scientific mind, was fascinated by the logistics of what he had gone through rather than repulsed. He even volunteered in old age to be an extra in the filming of A Night to Remember, the great 1958 dramatisation of the disaster. But he was regretfully overruled because union laws for extras prohibited non-union members being used. Lawrence Beasley had actually been a young widower at the time he boarded the Titanic. His first wife, Gertrude, had died of a lung problem six years earlier. Seven years after surviving and 13 years after his first wife's death, Beasley remarried to Muriel Greenwood, with whom he had three more sons. He returned to teaching in his native England, and he died aged 89 in the eastern English city of Lincoln in 1967. On the day the Titanic had left Ireland, Beasley had watched the seagulls, predicting that one day their engineering would see the new technology of aviation replace ocean liners like the Titanic as a way to cross the Atlantic. It was plain that the seagull is possessed of a secret that we humans are only just beginning to learn that of utilising air currents as escalators up and down, which he can glide at will with the expenditure of the minimum amount of energy. Aviators, of course, are imitating the goal. And soon, perhaps, may we see an aeroplane or glider dipping gracefully up and down in the face of an opposing wind, and all the time forging ahead across the Atlantic Ocean. Beasley's scientific prediction of 1912 came true in the year of his death, when one of the last truly great transatlantic liners, the Queen Mary, was retired from service, bowing to the newfound popularity of the commercial aeroplane. Her sister ship, the Queen Elizabeth, followed her a year later, and the Queen Mary became a floating museum and hotel in California. Since then, Beasley was right. Regular transatlantic voyages as a form of point-to-point travel have, as he predicted, been replaced almost completely by the aeroplanes. The Cunard liner Queen Mary II does sometimes still do them, but they're not run for speed and they're more of an experience for people rather than a mode of transport. Beasley's fellow second-class passenger Kate Buss outlived him by five years. She died aged 96 at an old people's home in Oregon. She was Kate Willis by the time she died, and she was survived by her daughter Sybil, who died in 2007. Kate had been travelling to marry her fiancé Sam in 1912, and they had a long, happy marriage that lasted over 40 years. In old age, Kate found it difficult to discuss the Titanic disaster, seeing it as too painful in her memories, especially when she thought of those she had lost, those she had met as friends on April the 10th, and then found out they had died on the 15th. We heard some of her letters written in 1912, as read by Joanne Doody, and I think this quote that she actually wrote when she was being rescued on the Carpathia summarised 
what would grow within Kate over the years, making it so difficult for her to talk about the Titanic. I shall never forget the splendid lives that were lost. And I'm grieving now, much more for them than for myself. Katie Gilner, who had been 16 years old when she survived the Titanic, didn't share Kate Buss's reticence in talking about it. Having successfully emigrated to America, Katie became Katie Manning when she married another Irish-born immigrant to the United States who'd found work as a chauffeur. They lived in Boston, but then moved to Queens, New York. Her husband died in the 1950s, and Katie joined the Titanic Historical Society. She gave interviews to the author Walter Lord when he researched his famous A Night to Remember book on the Titanic. She died as Katie Manning on Long Island, aged 76, in 1971. Another of those interviewed by Walter Lord was the Dowager Countess of Rothes, who in her letter to Lord, answering his questions, apologised for her late reply, explaining politely that she had been in hospital with some cardiac complaints, hence the delay. Her recollections help give us a window into the evacuation of the Titanic, but like Mary Sloan, the Dowager Countess was keen to stress the bravery of those who perished. I'm re-quoting some of her testimony, which was read for us this week by Rebecca Lenahan. All the crew were, of course, magnificent in their behaviour, and I always think so much ought to have been said and written about the engineers and firemen who never ever came up on deck and did all they could to keep a ship afloat for as long as possible. In the years since the Titanic, the Countess had served as a nurse during the First World War, in which her husband, the Earl of Rothes, lost an eye while on active service in the trenches. His health does not seem ever really to have fully recovered, and he died in March 1927 while he was still in his 40s. The Countess, now the Dodger Countess, subsequently remarried to a family friend, Colonel Claude McPhee, while her eldest son from her first marriage, Malcolm, succeeded his father, becoming the 20th Earl of Rothes. As his mother and Norman's widow, she kept her title even after her marriage to Colonel McPhee. One of her close friends in this was the current Queen's grandmother, Cecilia, Countess of Strathmore and Kinghorn, with whom the Countess of Rothes co-chaired the Royal Caledonian Ball, an annual high society fundraiser held in London which sent its proceeds to Scottish orphanages. At one of those balls, Cecilia helped launch her youngest daughter, Lady Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, into high society life as a debutante. Through this, she later met and married the future King George VI, with whom she became parents of Elizabeth II. The Dowager Countess of Rothes died at her country house in Sussex, aged 77, in September 1956, shortly after leaving hospital and answering Walter Lord's letters. Her first husband's cousin, who had been Gladys Cherry when she joined the Countess on the Titanic, had become Gladys Pringle, when she also married an ex-military man, George Octavius Pringle. Gladys died of a heart attack in hospital in Surrey on May 4th, 1965, aged 83. Her husband had predeceased her. Gladys's account of the evacuation of the Titanic read by actress Marianne Maguire can be found in our Day 5 episode. 
I think Gladys's account is one of the best in conveying to us just how terrifying being lowered in the Titanic's lifeboats actually was. We have talked a great deal this week about the Titanic's passengers, first, second and third class, and her upstairs crew. But what about the first to feel the impact of the iceberg, the men in the boiler rooms and their families at home, who were arguably some of the last to be left dealing with its truly horrific consequences? Well, I brought in someone who's done so much to bring this story, her family's story, to the public's attention with her ground-breaking debut book last year. Our guest today is Julie Cook, who is a British journalist whose tragic family history inspired her first book, The Titanic and the City of Widows It Left Behind. First published in 2020, Julie's research was inspired by the death of her great-grandfather, William Besant, who was a stoker, one of the men who worked in the boiler rooms on the Titanic. His death in the sinking left Julie's great-grandmother, Emily, as a widow with five young children facing poverty and heartbreak. In memory of their grief and their struggle, Julie was inspired to write a book looking at the pulverizing impact of the Titanic on working class communities in the English city of Southampton, where so many of the crew had been recruited. Julie, hi, welcome to Single Malt History. This is not our first interview together. We have tangoed on the Titanic before, but this is your first time here. So hello again. Hello. Yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure. Um, so, Julie, let's begin with William, your great-grandfather. Uh, you paint such a vivid picture in City of Widows of what working conditions were like for men such as your great-grandfather on the Titanic and other coal-consuming ships in the early 20th century. Can you give our listeners an insight into what William's working life was like? Yes. So, as a stoker on, as you say, these coal-consuming ships, um, life was very hard. Um, you had to be very physically strong, very, um, you, ha- you had to have a lot of stamina because obviously it being a steamship, it was completely based on the muscle power of the men down in the boiler room, literally heaving the, the coal up onto their shovel and, and feeding these furnaces. Um, they basically, at, at the time in Southampton um, around Titanic, there had been a coal strike. So from most of that year before the Titanic sailed, there had been a strike. So ships hadn't been coming and going as often. Um, and a result of that was massive unemployment of the men in Southampton who would normally have been on the ships. So um, many men were laid off. They were at home. They had nothing. There was obviously no welfare state as we know it now for them. Um, there, In my research, there were uh, pieces I found which talked of men going down to the docks and fighting literally with their fists for half a day at the docks um, doing something or fighting for a chance to go on a ship once they would sail again. So even getting a job at that point was was very, very tough. Um, when the ships were sailing, my great-grandfather had been on the Oceanic before, um, so he was quite a seasoned stoker. I believe the ships before Titanic were a lot harder to work on, I think, because Titanic was new and the, and the newest and the, apparently steamed very easy, according to the stokers. So I think getting a job on Titanic was also was a godsend, but it was also an easier ship to work on physically. Um, but yeah, so that that was the life. It was very much uh, on, off, sent home, maybe home for a few weeks, then, then on again, um, and very sporadic work if you got it. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the things that I had sort of forgotten until, I mean, not forgotten, but really hadn't fully thought through actually to my shame until I started your book about the impact of the minor strike on the men in Southampton and just how desperate they were for work by the spring of 1912. Yes, exactly. And and I think not only do we not think about that, I think we know, well, hopefully we know now that um, it was a difficult life. So people back then had no there were no sort of uh, safety nets, certainly if you didn't have a job. Um, but in somewhere like Southampton, where the sea was your income. So if you were a stoker or a fireman and then there was a coal strike, there was nothing else really for you to do. That was your job. Um, Southampton was becoming at that point the gateway to the world. You know, it was where all the work was. And then for that, that to all suddenly dry up, there was huge unemployment in the city that year. Um, so that alone made it a very difficult life um before you even got on the ship and then when you did uh, get your job on the ship it was a very difficult job physically um the stokers worked in around 50 degrees celsius heat um they worked in four hour shifts usually so four hours on eight hours off then back on again um but it was non-stop you know i, I can't imagine lifting a shovel and doing that three or four times let alone non-stop for four hours um so they were very by the time they came off the ships they were called skeletons. In some of my research I did, there were some oral histories from the time in Southampton of uh, people remembering seeing them stagger off what they called the killer ships and saying that they looked like skeletons because obviously working in that current kind of environment, you became very dehydrated. Um, they were given salt tablets to try and retain their, their body fluids, their salt levels, so they didn't pass out. Um, so when they did come off, they were absolutely mentally and physically exhausted. So you know, it was a really, really hard life. Horrific, really horrific. Uh, well, you and I told the story of the Titanic from opposite ends of the social spectrum, mm. as I just touched on. I looked at the disastrous and aperture into a very uneasy world of privilege at the top of the social hierarchy, whereas you looked at it from the perspective of people like your great-grandfather, who were not only invisible to all of the Titanic's passengers during the voyage, but who also seemed to stay invisible to the public after the sinking. Because the Titanic has been so prolifically covered in on-screen dramas that almost exclusively focus on her first or third-class passengers, I find myself, while I was writing, battling against a lot of the preconceptions about these people that have been put in place by popular culture. But you, in fact, again, sort of had the opposite problem, which is that nobody ever really focuses on the Stokers. All right, there's a, there's a tiny bit in the 1958 movie, A Night to Remember, where you see them being inspected by Thomas Andrews, and they're later told to dampen down the fires after the collision with the iceberg. But generally, there's nothing significant. And that was something which you say in the book really bothered your father when he saw these kind of movies being uh, rebroadcast on TV. Was part of writing City of Widows for you an attempt to put these men back in the cultural consciousness? Yes, definitely. Uh, as I mentioned, my, my father... He sadly died in 2005, so is is unable to seal this. But I remember growing up and he would say, you know, you had a great grandfather who died on this ship. Um, we'd watch a night to remember together. Um, and then he'd he'd sort of he was a huge Titanic fan and very interested in in the history, but he would always sort of lament the fact that it wasn't really you didn't they weren't represented, the stokers and the firemen or the lower echelons of the crew um and I think that I sort of obviously absorbed that growing up and when I did 
plan to write the book, my main thing was I wanted these men to be known about, first of all, to be remembered um, and not sort of glossed over. And I think one of the reasons they are is because Titanic, the Titanic was such a beautiful, opulent ship. And we all, of course, it's natural that you you want to, you veer towards that, you know, the, the big names and the luxury and how beautiful it was and all of that. It's natural that we want to look at those things. But I think what we forget is that on the Titanic, the reason it sailed was these these lowly working class men, um, and they're just not talked about. And and obviously they had little chance of survival. Um, I know third class had a a much lower chance of survival than first class, but the crew it was it was stacked against you, particularly if you worked in the boiler rooms. You know, physically at the very bottom of the ship if you were on shift, but also you were in societal terms at that point, the absolute lowest of the low. So I wanted to get that across that not only are they not talked about, but we I think we should talk about how hard their lives were um, and how what a big part they played in also helping people get off the Titanic. You know, it was known that a lot of the, I know the engineers were obviously a lot higher up than the Black Gang, but the engineers who stayed there in the boiler room with some of the Black Gang, keeping everything going so that people could still have light and evacuate the ship. I think we just don't talk enough about them. No, that's, I mean, one thing, one of the characters, sorry, figures I looked at in uh, Ship of Dreams, Jack Fair, who was the son of a US railway tycoon. Mm. The reason why he survived was he jumped from the ship, but he managed to reach an overturned uh, lifeboat. And it was actually a stoker who had managed to jump as well and climb on board this um, overturned lifeboat who pulled him up. Mm. Of the water and I thought that was quite a moving uh, detail but I mean yeah. that's a very very rare case because for the stokers they would not have been if they had gotten life belts they would still have been wearing what they wore for their shifts which would mm. be designed to keep them cool which obviously given the temperature outside meant that it was the opposite of what you should have been wearing uh, to, to safely evacuate the Titanic and so in that sense really every last detail was stacked against them. Um, yes. Can you give us a brief overview of what the deaths at sea of men like your great grandfather did to working class families in 1912? Yes. Uh, well, in a word, absolute devastation. Um, sorry, that's two words. <laughs> absolute devastation. Um, but yes, <laughs> when they when they died, first of all, they um, the waiting period. So the women had this awful period of anxiety where. You know, living in a time we know all about things happening around the world as it happens. You know, we have Twitter, we have social media, we have satellite television, we have all these amazing things at our fingertips to find out about news. Back then, of course, we have to remember there was none of that. So when these women found out via the first editions of the newspaper, Titanic has has sunk. You know, we don't know how many people have, have survived or made it. So the first thing was just awful anxiety for days and days, wondering if your husband or your son um, was was one of the ones who survived or didn't. Then, of course, came the news, yes, your husband died. Um, but again, there was no body. So you still lived in this awful limbo. Of, well, how can I believe that? There's no one to grieve for. There's no none of the usual norms to go through, such as a funeral or a religious service or any of that, which was so important back then. So again, you had no closure, as we call it now. But then, of course, there was the, uh, the financial implications. So just to give my great-grandmother's example, um, 
And she relied on William's earnings. So when they stopped, she had to take in laundry from people in her street. Um, now, that wasn't unusual for a working class woman, of course, but I think it shows the desperation. So just taking people's laundry while you're grieving, you know, there's no sort of lying around and crying. She had to get up and, and feed her five children. Um, then, of course, there was the where will the next money come from? How you pay the rent? Um, several women that, in, during my research, I found out were evicted from their their rented houses because they had no money coming in. Others had children taken off them. Um, others had to go into workhouse, which was still ha- happening back then. There were still workhouses in Southampton, so it devastated whole communities um and there was one road called Malmesbury Avenue which literally every other door had somebody who had died on the Titanic so a whole street for example lost everybody um so it really devastated the whole city it was said that there was no street where somebody hadn't lost somebody or certainly didn't know somebody who had that's uh, it was that was I mean when reading City of Widows, that was one thing that was like, like pulverizing to read. It just, it was like a bomb that kind of kept on exploding. And I think you got across really well the, the sheer scale of it. One thing, I mean, you've touched on this briefly, actually, but one thing that I think we as readers or observers of the past tend to forget or be unaware of is just how class conscious concepts of morality were in the Victorian and Edwardian era. And your book really does bring it home in quite a hideous way, just how deeply the lower classes, quote unquote, particularly if they were urban, if they were city dwellers, were considered to be inherently more untrustworthy than the upper and middle classes to the extent that the Titanic widows who tried to claim pensions or charity almost felt sort of interrogated and humiliated by the process. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, so the first the first thing they had to do was um, prove who they were. So there was a compensation process to go through, um, and that was held in Southampton, where the women had to, first of all, say who they were, explain how they were related to the deceased, um, talk about how they'd met, how long they'd been together, all these things. So it was almost like an interrogation in a courtroom to prove who they were. Um, There were cases where women's um, cases were thrown out because, for example, a son hadn't supported his mother for seven or eight years, therefore she wouldn't get anything. And all these um, embarrassing personal details had to come out of family life in a a public way. Um, And then after that, the Titanic Relief Fund came in, which was the huge charity um, that was brought together by the mayor of Southampton and then the mayor of London and then it became an international charity and it raised £412,000 back then which is multi-millions today Um, but instead of awarding these women a kind of lump sum to get on and live their lives again it was based on class so you had class A down to class G and a class A recipient of an award would be the wife of an officer or somebody very high up on the the boat going right down through um, second class officers, stewards um, and then right down to firemen, greasers and the people who worked in the boiler room and again they were class G so Emily as the wife of a Titanic fireman was class G and so her award would be 12 shillings a week uh, based on his death 
which I think when I did my calculations equated to around 50 or 60 pounds a week, but that's for your rent and your five children, um, you know, and, and no way of earning yourself. So it was not a lot to live on. Um, but to get that money, you were inspected by someone they appointed at the charity fund called the Lady Visitor. And her name was Ethel Newman. And she would ride around on her bicycle around to all the recipients' houses and do a sort of monthly check. And she would check are you looking after your children? Um, is your house kept clean? Um, have you met a new man? Because if you have, then he might be helping towards your income. So, you know, we can't have that. Um, if women remarried, they were struck off the fund because it was seen, well, you have a husband now, so he will provide for you and you no longer are going to receive anything. Um, so it was, it was very embarrassing. They had to open their whole lives up. And in the minute funds of the charities, so every month they'd have their meeting, I was lucky enough to look at those wonderful primary sources um and there were talks in the in the meeting minutes of well so and so um was found drinking again so we need to stop her fund for a few weeks and send her to a house for inebriates or um mrs so and so isn't looking after her children so we're going to take them away and and i think their lives because they were working class were discussed as if they were these kind of subhuman life forms you know because they that everything was was criticised. You know, they did if if they drank, if they met a new man, if their house wasn't spick and span. Um, so yeah, they they were really a, seen as very very low in society. Um, and I think it must have been very embarrassing and humiliating to have every aspect of your life checked and talked about in a public meeting or in a courtroom. I can't. I mean, I can't imagine that. And I and it did come across, you know, from from the sources and in your book as a deeply deeply dehumanizing process and i hope people read more about it because it certainly changed a lot of my views about what happened after the disaster last question on a slightly lighter note we have had a bit of a bash at social underrepresentation in titanic movies but do you have a personal favorite among the dramatizations of the disaster yes i do um it would be a night to remember from uh, the 1958 yeah um i think well, number one, it's the first one I ever saw. So it had a huge impact on me because I remember growing up watching it as a child um, with my father and and him, because he was telling me, oh, your great grandfather died on this ship. I took it really, you know, personally watching this film as a young child, really absorbed it. Um, and I have these, you know, I still get shivers when I watch it because I, I remember seeing, you know, these the, some of the scenes of little children clinging to older people and there's a child says, where's my mummy? And all these things that you really, you just go thrown back to your childhood and shiver and think it was awful. Um, so I found it a very moving film. I also think that given the time um, and the lack of resources to filmmakers then, I think it was a fantastic job, you know, just the way it looks even. Um, I think with, with very little technology then compared to what we have now um, and all to the Cameron film, for example, I think it, it's still a really powerful film, um, much much simpler, but very, very powerful. Um, and I, I think as you mentioned earlier, there is at least a small reference to the fireman in the Stokers where Thomas Andrews goes down and inspects it. Um, very brief, but at least it's there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, that's my favourite. I obviously watched the Titanic um, Cameron film as well in the 90s. Um, bl blockbuster film, of course. But I think for me, because the storyline focuses far more on the fictional characters of Rose and Jack, um, I think although there are obviously the big names in there, Guggenheim, uh, Molly Brown, etc. I think even they almost become uh, extras in the film uh, rather than the lead roles of these two fictional characters. So I think 
I think for me that detracts slightly from the tragedy, whereas Night to Remember really hones in on the tragedy to a, a micro level, I think. So that's my favourite. Yeah, I would agree. I also, honestly, we don't have time for me to get into this, but I loathe the character of Rose more than I hate most fictional characters. She really? <laughs> so annoying. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no. Oh, Julie, I can't. Anyway, she, but yes, I agree. A night to remember was mine. My great grandfather um, saw the Titanic being built in Belfast. His great grandfather worked in the, sh- sorry, his father. So my great great grandfather worked in the shipyards. And yes. I heard from him about the Titanic, and his favorite was a night to remember as well. So mm, I mm. think that it, it, it stands up, I think, to people of, of that era. Well, yeah. Julie, thank you so much for stopping by. Um, I, I love this. I think it's such an undertold um, part of the tragedy. And for anyone interested in reading more, Julie Cook's book, The Titanic and the City of Widows It Left Behind, is published by Pen and Sword and is available now. Julie, thank you so much. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you for having me. My thanks to Julie uh, and also to some of the fantastic British, Irish and American actors who over the past week have brought to life for us the words of some of the Titanic's victims, observers and survivors. Personal thanks to Ashley Montgomery as crew member Mary Sloan, Caelan Carraher as Irish author Sham Bullock, Deborah Hill who played the Ulster housewife and third class passenger Katie Gilna, Joanne Doody as second class passenger Kate Buss, Marianne Maguire as first-class passenger Gladys Cherry, Paul Stores as second-class passenger Lawrence Beasley and first-class passenger Jack Thayer, Peter Evangelista as American novelist Morgan Robertson and as first-class passenger Colonel Archibald Gracie IV, and Rebecca Lenehan as first-class passengers Ida Strauss and Noelle Leslie, Countess of Rothes. And most importantly of all, I'd like to thank you for your incredibly kind words and for making this special week of single malt history such a success. To say I'm touched by that success so soon into the podcast's run is an understatement. The Titanic is a story that meant a lot to my late great-grandparents who I've mentioned. They imparted that story to me and I have carried a love of it thanks to them since my childhood and now I'm lucky enough to have it form part of my career. Sharing this with you to such positive feedback has been special and humbling. After Titanic Anniversary Week, I'll be on a schedule for about one episode per week, give or take. So please join me at the end of this week for my interview and sit-down chat with Dr Lauren Mackay, expert on the 16th century, with whom I'll be discussing the dark legend of Anne Boleyn's notorious father Thomas and the surprising truths she uncovered when she wrote the first biography of this infamous earl. There's a surprising amount of laughter too, as well as Lauren's knowledge. Thank you all and wishing you and yours a great serving in the week ahead. Mm